Learn about what the guests did before research, how they got involved in academia, and what kind of impact their research can have on you. The Alamac is covering it all from Thursday 12 to 12.30 p.m. on 93.3 CFMU, redefining radio in your community. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Thanks for tuning back to the Almamac here on 93.3 CFMU, where every Thursday, 12 to 12.30, we interview a McMaster graduate student, and we learn more about their research and their graduate journey. On today's episode, I would like to welcome Aaron Nichols. Aaron is a fourth-year PhD candidate in the School of Earth, Environment, and Society under the Faculty of Science. Welcome to the Almamac, Aaron. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks very much for joining us today. I'm really excited excited to dig not only into your research, but also your graduate student journey. Uh, we were talking a little bit before we came on air uh, about how, you've, how long you've been at Mac and kind of how um, you've kind of uh, uh, developed some really great uh, relationships and connections here at McMaster and beyond. Yeah, absolutely. I've been here a really long time. <laughs> um, I started my undergrad uh, in 2009, and I started off in the life science program. And then in second year, I switched into the earth and environmental science uh, stream. And I've sort of, I haven't been here ever since, but it almost feels like it. So I completed my degree um, and with a specialization uh, focused on hydrology and micrometeorology. And then um, I had an opportunity to do my master's here as well. So I stayed after my undergrad and did my master's with Dr. Sean Carey. Um, and I did some research doing wetland reclamation out in Fort McMurray. Um, and then I worked for a while and then I started my PhD in 2018, um, switching gears a bit and now I study mountain hydrology. So um, it's been quite the journey, many different research topics um, and a lot of fun years at McMaster. <laughs> Good, I'm happy to hear that. Um, so can you tell us about your current PhD research? Sure. So um, my current PhD research, uh, again, is also with Dr. Sean Carey, um, and it's under a program called Global Water Futures. So um, it's a large program that looks at water issues um, that are facing Canada and, and the world. Um, and under that uh, program, I'm under a program called uh, Mountain Water Futures. And so my work specifically uh, looks at how vegetation change is um Vegetation basically is getting greener and greener in the north. So um, across Canada's high uh, latitude areas, um, basically we're seeing an increase in vegetation growth. So tree line is moving north um, and in with elevation um, and actually more quickly shrubs are becoming really dominant. So there's this term called shrubification and um, it's where shrubs are increasing in their height, extent and density. Um, and these changes to vegetation really alter the water cycle. So um, the north is warming much faster than the rest of Canada. Um, and so communities in the north are really experiencing um, firsthand um, really quick uh, impacts of climate change. Uh, and so that has a number of effects like, um, you know, glacier retreat and and thawing permafrost and the timing and magnitude of flooding events is changing um, and so this vegetation change is one piece of this really large um, puzzle of a number of processes that are changing because of that warming um, and so my research specifically looks at how tree line advance and how that shrubification um, really changes how water is cycled and stored 
Um, and what I mean by that is when you increase the amount of um, vegetation or you change the species, you change how that vegetation um, interacts with water. Uh, so a lot of people don't think about it, but if you're, you know, if you're, even if you're just driving down the highway or out for a walk in the forest, um, the vegetation is sort of that first barrier from the ground to the atmosphere. And so when you change the vegetation, you change um, how that precipitation is intercepted, so how rainfall um, is blocked by vegetation um, before it reaches the surface, um, and also how snow interacts and is trapped by vegetation. Um, and then additionally, uh, a large component of my research is looking at how evaporation changes. So different plants use different amounts of water um, at different times of year. So my my research is really looking at what's the influence of the north becoming greener um, and does it matter which species kind of dominate. Um, and so we really need this information because um, in the west, um, especially in Canada's mountain uh, areas, um, if you think about the way Canada's, uh, you know, made up, most of the water west of the Great Lakes um, comes from the mountains. And so um, when you have really rapid changes in climate, um, and, you know, the mountains are the water towers of Canada um, and the world. So we rely on the water that's coming from those mountains. And so when you change the vegetation um, and you change a lot of the processes that are going on because of warming, um, you're changing the amount and the timing of when, um, you know, stream flow comes down from those mountains. So my work is really just zeroing in on that vegetation component, but thinking about that over large scales and how that influences overall hydrology. So that was a lot. So feel free to break it down. If yeah, you need. no, no. Thank you for sharing that. And I guess I just wanted to touch on one of the points that you mentioned that, you know, some of the consequences of the north um, warming at a faster pace uh, are, for example, the glaciers melting and thawing permafrost and vegetation is just one component of that changing vegetation, yes. how the, tr the tree line is moving further and further up north and how that may have consequences um, that people like me, for instance, might not have acknowledged or, or understood. So I'm, I'm curious, Erin, what is it about um, the uh, furthering tree line or this change in vegetation that made you interested in studying that um, particular component? Yeah, um, so I first went up to Yukon in 2015 um, when I was doing my, my master's and I was doing my master's out in Fort McMurray and uh, one of uh, the other PhD students in our lab was starting her PhD um, in, in our research basin near Whitehorse and um, she needed someone to drive with her across the country so um, of course I said yes and that was an adventure in itself um, but I really just fell in love with the north I fell in love with the community and the culture um, and, I, and the landscape uh, and the number one thing that really struck me, um, even when you when you talk to people that are um, that that live there, um, you know they're seeing these changes so quickly, and um, it's really affecting their daily life. I mean, there were flooding issues. Um, there's many flooding issues across Yukon um, and and other parts of the north, and communities are affected. Um, and so, to me, one of the the most you know. Although we see a number of all these changes that I could go on and on about, um, the vegetation component um, is is quite understudied in hydrology. So um, a lot of the time, you know, we have these big models where we're, you know, looking at things from space or we're looking at things over large scales. Um, and I'm classically interested in catchment hydrology. I really like kind of looking at what's going to happen at 
you know, the stream level and, and you know, looking at how watersheds integrate all of these different processes. Um, but specifically, the vegetation um, topic really struck me just because it's, it's understudied and it's happening so quickly. Um, I know my supervisor, um, he did his PhD in Wolf Creek Research Basin, which is where I, I currently um, conduct my research and a number of my, my lab mates as well. And um, back when he was doing his PhD, uh, you know, about 20 or 25 years ago, they installed instruments and they installed these sensors that were above the vegetation um, and they measured, you know, how much energy they were reflecting, the temperature dynamics, um, a number of uh, variables. But what they found, and um, they actually went back to those stations, um, I think it was last summer, and they were kind of laughing and they said, why did we install the instruments below the vegetation? Like they need to be above the shrubs. Um, and the, the shrubs had truly just grown, you know, so much in that time span. So, um, for me, I really wanted to kind of give vegetation a voice in the hydrology world um, because over such large scales, it really can play a large role in the water cycle. Um, I've, I, did, I studied evaporation uh, for my fourth year undergrad thesis as well. And I would tell my friends that I studied evaporation and they would just laugh and kind of make fun of me. And I remember one of my friends looking at me and saying, that is the most boring topic ever because, you know, who cares about evaporation? But um, it's a really large component of, you know, hydrology in our water cycle. And these changes that are happening really quickly, um, just they just change how water runs off. And so we really need to be able to predict what these changes will look like over the next, you know, 10, 20, 50 years. So I just fell in love with the North and I saw this as an opportunity to um, kind of harness my research experience, but also um, on a topic that has implications. Erin, can you tell us a little bit about how you or your lab mates study changes to vegetation and its impact on the water cycle, like some of the methods or measurements that you may use? Sure. So um, my research really focuses in on um, on evapotranspiration. So again, that's a term that we use to um, most people have heard of evaporation. Um, so when when liquid or solid um, water turns into water vapor, um, and so and then there's transpiration, which actually is coming through the stomata of vegetation. So um, evapotranspiration is this blanket term that we use to to um, encapsulate all the, the water loss um, through evaporation. Um, and so my work specifically measures that component. So I have stations um, and these, these towers, um, and we actually have a number of uh, other researchers in our department that use these methods as well. Um, there's some at Turkey Point and, you know, up north. Um, so our is a standard um, way of measuring this. We use these eddy covariance towers. And what they do is they sit above the vegetation um, and they measure the gas fluxes. So they measure how much water vapor is is um, coming through the air. So it measures the vertical wind speed and then the concentration of the gas that's going with it. Um, and so I have these towers that are, um, you know, I have mine that are below a uh, tree line um, in the boreal forest. And then I have some mid elevation in our mountainous catchment um, above tall, dense shrubs. And then I have um, uh, a higher elevation site that has shorter kind of sparser vegetation. So I use these towers to measure evapotranspiration. Um, and I'm sort of using the mountains as a space for time analogy. So I'm studying the forest and tall shrubs and short shrubs and trying to use that as sort of, um, yeah, just an example of how things might change. Um, how, does, how do those sites um, evaporate water differently? So um, essentially, a lot of my research is using 
just direct measurements of evaporation. Um, but the other ways that we, we look at that, um, we also measure interception. So um, we have a student um, in our lab, um, Tyler DeYoung, and he's looking at, um, you know, different snow dynamics. So when you increase the amount of vegetation, you, you change how... Um, how much snow is trapped and, and how much rain is intercepted. So um, we also have uh, students there um, almost year round uh, doing different surveys of how much um, snow is being trapped. Mm. Um, and then we have some more sophisticated methods um, that uh, that use stable water isotopes and they, they almost act like fingerprints for water sources. So um, we can see, um, you know, we can look at the fingerprint of rain and, and snow and groundwater um, and stream water. And so I also measure those um, in the vegetation itself. So in the xylem of vegetation and in the soil. So I can try to parse out, um, you know, is, is, are these plants using snow or are they using rain? Um, and what kind of, you know, sources of moisture are they using at different times of the year? So we use a number of different methods to try to understand the role of vegetation. Um, and on a larger scale, we had um, to look at the actual vegetation change. Um, there's lots of ways to do this. Um, there's aerial photography mm-hmm. um, and different remote sensing methods. Um, but we had a student, um, Sean Leapy, who who's graduated now, but he did his master's. Um, he used LIDAR uh, flights. Um, so they would fly over the basin and they did that in 2008. And then they did it about 11 years later. Um, and so we looked at the changes in vegetation cover. Um, so we have different people in our lab doing, I'm kind of doing the evaporation side, and then we have the snow side, and then we have um, the actual monitoring, the actual change in vegetation as well. So um, I, there's lots of different methods to try to, to try to figure it out. And I'm curious, so you mentioned how you have these um, sensors or towers at different elevations. Mm-hmm. So would we expect that over time, if we know that the tree line is moving further and further up north, that um, the higher elevations over time, they seem to reflect uh, evaporation, uh, evapotranspiration cycles of those lower elevations? Uh, yes. And so it's, it's a little tricky and complicated, but um, essentially... Yes, we're using the, the elevation for that for that time uh, component to compare. Um, so, for example, my lower elevation sites um, are, are below the tree line, so it's over a white spruce um, boreal forest, and I'm seeing that the evaporation over that forest is is you know higher than what I'm seeing at higher elevations. It's warmer, but also um, you know just the total ET evapotranspiration is higher. Um, and then the really interesting thing is comparing the short shrub and the, the tall shrub, because as much as we're seeing tree line advance north, um, and we're the most rapid thing that we're observing is this shrubification. So, um, you know, tree line is moving north, and it's definitely an important process, um, but it's a lot slower than, than these shrubs. These shrubs can just, you know, that height difference is really quite um, remarkable. Um, and I remember we were speaking to um, some First Nations um, in northern parts of Yukon, and they were saying they've really noticed these willow shrubs that are just, you know, so much taller. And they sort of hated them. They were laughing that they hated the willows because they were just getting so big. So in terms of, um, you know, comparing the evaporation between the two, um, we're seeing that they don't have a huge difference um, when you look seasonally in the, the short shrub versus the tall shrub site. Um, but when you add more vegetation, you're typically lowering that interannual variability. So um, 
there's tons of different um, kind of dynamics at play here. Um, but typically, if we see an increase in tree line, we expect that we'll see an increase in overall evapotranspiration. Um, but the differences between the shrubs, um, I'm finding, at least in my research, that it will be the length of the growing season that really changes because, um, you know, these are cold environments and the growing season is quite short. So it's, if we're seeing a warming climate and suddenly that growing season is longer, um, then all of a sudden these plants are transpiring for a longer period of time. Um, and I actually also measure the the actual transpiration from plants. So I use these sensors called SAPFLOW sensors. And so um, it was a great opportunity as a student. I got to construct them myself um, in the lab here at PSB um, and pack them away and fly them to Yukon. Um, and what they are is they're sensors that go into the, the xylem of a tree um, and they... I won't go into too many details, but essentially one of the probes is constantly heated. Um, and uh, Alana Bodo, who's a, a colleague of mine, just finished her PhD, really focused in on this. Um, and so essentially we measure the amount of water that's moving up the tree. So we can actually assess the role of that tree in evapotranspiration um, relative to the total amount that's being lost from the canopy. Um, and so I also, I use that method and I also um, look at sap flow and shrub species. Mm -hmm. So I attach those um, to the, those higher elevation sites. And what I'm finding is that the transpiration rates of those shrubs um, are really quite high. So um, just to kind of circle back to your question of, you know, even though we'll see higher e increases in evaporation um, if we see a tree line advancing north, um, in the, if the growing season is longer and those shrubs are able to, um, you know, be active for longer and transpire for longer, um, then that could have bigger implications for for water loss. So we may see that, um, you know, more water is lost before it infiltrates and, and heads downstream. So it's it's complicated. There's a number of, of kind of dynamics at play, but uh, it really does it does depend on the species and it depends on the climate drivers as well. Okay, so a lot of variables. Yeah, a lot of variables. Erin, um, I'm curious how your you or your lab got connected uh, over at the Yukon. Was there some sort of research connection, um, or like why did your lab specifically choose to study uh, there? Yeah, um, so I, I, of course, became involved because of my supervisor, um, Sean Carey, and he's been, he did his PhD at McMaster as well um, under the supervision of Dr. Hawk Wu. So he's a very famous um, cold regions hydrologist, um, and our department actually has a lecture series um, named after him. And um, so if you are interested at all, I highly encourage you to keep your eye out for the Wu water lecture that happens every year. Um, and so... Uh, as I mentioned, Sean was the, the first PhD student to work in, in Wolf Creek Research Basin. And um, it was that basin is located about 15 kilometers south of Whitehorse. Um, and it was established as a research basin um, back in the early 90s, so 92. Um, and at that time, um, the government of Yukon um, was really wanting to partner with universities um, because we had a really poor understanding of cold regions hydrological processes. So um, there was a hydrologist by the name of Rick Janowitz, and he um, really started Wolf Creek Research Basin, and he wanted to partner. Um, so John Pomeroy, and um, who's the head of Global Water Futures now, um, and and Hawk Wu, and, and Sean, and a bunch of uh, you know so many other researchers. Um, started studying these processes in this basin. So um, that was kind of the first link. So it was really um, headed up by the government of Yukon. Um, and we wanted it to be, a, you know, this, this hub where we're learning about, you know, 
all different aspects of the hydrological cycle. Um, and it's really become an important international site um, because these long-term measurements really matter. Um, and in the north, data is quite sparse. It's really challenging to work in these environments. It's expensive to work in these environments. Um, you know, if you think about Yukon, uh, most of the population lives in Whitehorse. And as soon as you drive out of Whitehorse, it, it's quite um, sparsely populated. So having people on the ground to check these instruments and, you know, get this data um, is really valuable. So having um, long-term research um, data available, like we do in Wolf Creek, um, has been really important and has really... Um, um, helped the the global community in terms of understanding cold regions hydrology, um, and so so since Sean did his PhD there, there's been you know so many other graduate students that have that have worked there, um, and so that was sort of the the initial connection. Um, but uh, yeah, there's just been a lot of work that's been done, um, and it, ha it has to be a team effort. I mean, you know, we're studying this watershed and how it's changing with time, um, but uh, it really involves you know people that are studying the plants and the water and the runoff and the climate. And so, um, again, there's all these different pieces of the puzzle. And so my research is really focused in on that, that vegetation component. Um, but as a whole, and even within just our lab group, we're really trying to understand um, a number of these, these processes. It really is a collaborative effort. It is, yeah. It has to be. We're going to take a short break here on 93.3 CFMU, but make sure you stay tuned because we're going to continue learning about Aaron's research Feel overwhelmed when you read research papers? Think research is being conducted in labs far, far away? Well, tune into the Alma Mac Thursdays from 12 to 12.30 p.m. where we interview McMaster graduate students about their research. You'll learn about important research that's happening right on campus. Learn about what the guests did before research, how they got involved in academia, and what kind of impact their research can have on you. The Alamac is covering it all from Thursday 12 to 12.30 p.m. on 93.3 CFMU, redefining radio in your community. Hey there, folks. Did you know CFMU is on Twitter? CFMU actually has a very rich history in social media. Our MySpace Top 8 was a veritable wall of fame. Our Live Journal blog was a cornucopia of teen goth poetry. But now, we've set up shop on Twitter. We've chugged our Kofifi and come ready to post. Follow us at 93.3 CFMU for news and updates about CFMU shows and Hamilton life. See you there. We'll not literally see you, but we'll see your RTs. And in the end, isn't that what really matters? The Friends of CFMU card features over 30 businesses in the Hamilton area and beyond. Stony Creek, Ancaster, Dundas, and Burlington. Over 30 businesses offering you deals and special offers. All you've got to do is present the card. And to get a card, all you have to do is donate $30, just $30, to your community radio station, 93.3 FM, CFMU, and CFMU.ca. So check out our website, CFMU.ca, and click on Friends of CFMU at the bottom of the page. You'll learn all about who's on the card, where they're at, and what they offer. You'll find businesses like the Art Gallery of Hamilton, Big B Comics, Downtown Bike Hounds, Dr. Disc, Emco Burlington, and the Emco Ensuite Showroom in Hamilton. Feel overwhelmed when you read research papers? Think research is being conducted in labs far, far away? Well, tune into the Almanac Thursdays from 12 to 12.30 p.m. where we interview McMaster graduate students about their research. You'll learn about important research that's happening right on campus. 
Learn about what the guests did before research, how they got involved in academia, and what kind of impact their research can have on you. The Alamac is covering it all from Thursday 12 to 12.30 p.m. on 93.3 CFMU, redefining radio in your community. Hey there, folks. Did you know CFMU is on Twitter? CFMU actually has a very rich history in social media. Our MySpace Top 8 was a veritable wall of fame. Our Live Journal blog was a cornucopia of teen goth poetry. But now, we've set up shop on Twitter. We've chugged our Kofifi and come ready to post. Follow us at 93.3 CFMU for news and updates about CFMU shows and Hamilton life. See you there. We'll not literally see you, but we'll see your RTs. And in the end, isn't that what really matters? The Friends of CFMU card features over 30 businesses in the Hamilton area and beyond. Stony Creek, Ancaster, Dundas, and Burlington. Over 30 businesses offering you deals and special offers. All you've got to do is present the card. And to get a card, all you have to do is donate $30, just $30, to your community radio station, 93.3 FM, CFMU, and CFMU.ca. So check out our website, CFMU.ca, and click on Friends of CFMU at the bottom of the page. You'll learn all about who's on the card, where they're at, and what they offer. You'll find businesses like the Art Gallery of Hamilton, Big B Comics, Downtown Bike Hounds, Dr. Disc, Emco Burlington, and the Emco Ensuite Showroom in Hamilton. Feel overwhelmed when you read research papers? Think research is being conducted in labs far, far away? Well, tune into the Almanac Thursdays from 12 to 12.30 p.m. where we interview McMaster graduate students about their research. You'll learn about important research that's happening right on campus. Learn about what the guests did before research, how they got involved in academia, and what kind of impact their research can have on you. The Alamac is covering it all from Thursday 12 to 12.30 p.m. on 93.3 CFMU, redefining radio in your community. Hey there, folks. Did you know CFMU is on Twitter? CFMU actually has a very rich history in social media. Our MySpace Top 8 was a veritable wall of fame. Our Live Journal blog was a cornucopia of teen goth poetry. But now, we've set up shop on Twitter. We've chugged our Kofifi and come ready to post. Follow us at 93.3 CFMU for news and updates about CFMU shows and Hamilton life. See you there. We'll not literally see you, but we'll see your RTs. And in the end, isn't that what really matters? The Friends of CFMU card features over 30 businesses in the Hamilton area and beyond. Stony Creek, Ancaster, Dundas, and Burlington. Over 30 businesses offering you deals and special offers. All you've got to do is present the card. And to get a card, all you have to do is donate $30, just $30, to your community radio station, 93.3 FM, CFMU. What's going on, everybody? Thanks for tuning back to 93.3 CFMU here. This is the Alamac. I'm your host, Severa West, but that is enough about me. As we were previously, before the break, we were talking to Erin, who is a fourth-year PhD candidate here at McMaster. And she was talking about a really important research that she's doing uh, with evapotranspiration and its impact on the water cycle in Yukon. Um, So, Erin, just before we close the program here, can you tell us some of your most um, memorable experiences that you've had in the Yukon? Sure. Um, I might need a lot more time. (laughs) Um, It's just such a magical place. Um, It's truly unlike anywhere else I've ever been. It's just beauty from all angles. Um, 
yeah, in terms of my one of my favorite memories, um, we you know we work really uh, we work very near Whitehorse. Our research basin is very close to Whitehorse, um, and there's no shortage of beauty um, just in around town. Um, but in 2018, uh, we are my supervisor started a project working um, along the Dempster Highway, so um, a little bit north. You may have heard of Dawson City, which is um, where the gold rush was. Um, it's a wonderful place to visit. Um, but uh, essentially, near Dawson is where a highway starts and goes up um, all the way to Newbeck. Um, and so I was given the opportunity to drive that, um, and we and we we constantly drive it now. And we have a student, um, Arsh Gruwal. Um, and he's currently doing his PhD, um, you know, really focused in on the Dempster Highway. And, you know, as it's it's an 800-kilometer highway, and we look at the influence of, you know, how permafrost is changing along this latitudinal gradient. Um, and so, truthfully, I would highly recommend driving it. It's one of the most stunning um, – it's a dirt highway, but, uh, you know, I've seen so many – you know, countless grizzly bears and, and close encounters and moose and just unbelievable wildlife. And you drive through a number of different kind of mountain ranges and it's all very different. Um, you know, it wasn't as the glacier um, cover is just so different there. Um, and there was areas where there was no glacier, glaciers. Um, so I would highly recommend just camping along the Dempster is just a highlight. So for sure. Wildlife, scenic views, uh, evapotranspiration. You've done it all, Erin. <laughs> Can't capture it on radio, but um, if you want to check out some photos there, it's just breathtaking. Well, thank you, Erin, very much for coming on the show today. And thank you to all of you who are listening here on 93.3 CFMU. Make sure you stay tuned because Get Lit is coming up next. See you next week, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Get Lit. Today on the show, we speak with author Kevin Wilson. You're listening to Get Lit. I'm Jamie, and we are on the phone with K.R. Wilson. Now, am I to call you K.R. or Kevin? Kevin, please. <laughs> uh, I, I probably would have published as Kevin Wilson, but there's already a Kevin Wilson uh, publishing in the U.S., mm-hmm. so uh, we decided to go with uh, with the initials instead. Totally makes sense. Uh, Kevin, welcome to the show, man. The book is called Call Me Stan, A Tragedy in Three Millennia, and it's out through uh, Guernica. Uh, so there's some Hamilton connections going on, Kevin. A little bit, yeah. Uh, 